This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning into Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. At the time of recording this episode, the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi have just begun. I have always been a huge fan of this event, especially the figure skating for its beauty and grace, and the curling for its, um, showcase of brooming skills? Uh, regardless of the sport, viewers from around the world will be treated to truly amazing acts of athleticism. In order to perform these incredible feats, every athlete has been training for years to try and execute their movements flawlessly. But underneath it all, the athletes are counting on one thing to work just as planned, their brain to send the proper timing of electrical signals in order to get their muscles to move in perfect harmony. How does our brain coordinate these signals to generate movement? What happens if it fails to do so? And how do we learn to perform complex series of movements? Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Tom Otis. Tom is a neuroscientist at UCLA and has been working to explain how this kind of coordination takes place. He has focused his research primarily on one brain region, the cerebellum, which plays a critical role in movement. We'll learn more about this brain region in a bit, as well as why it can help us answer these questions. Let's go to the interview. You study the way in which information flows and the way that brain systems coordinate with one another. Uh, so can you give us an example of when brain activity coordinates correctly and it works and when that doesn't work, like when an, an example when it fails? So, I, I mean, from my own work, from the system that we study, which is the cerebellum and uh, how it controls or participates in motor coordination, I think it's 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 fair to imagine that the cerebellum plays a big role in how certain individuals can become skilled musicians, can become uh, better athletes. That learning in part, we believe, happens in the cerebellum. And uh, we don't know the details, but for those of us who, like myself, aren't such good musicians or athletes, <laughs> maybe this doesn't work as well as compared to those who, who um, become skilled musicians or become really adept uh, athletes. Obviously, there are other factors involved in both of those skills. There are also diseases that strike the cerebellum. And these diseases are called ataxias, which is essentially a medical term that uh, refers to incoordination. We are beginning, we being the field of uh, neuroscientists, are beginning to understand exactly how certain types of neurons in the cerebellum are affected by these diseases. There's been an explosion of information about genes that cause ataxias. And so we know of at least 25 or so individual genes that when they're mutated will cause a genetic form of ataxia. And so there's, there has been, and there's bound to be continuing progress in understanding how those genetic defects cause an inability for this part of the brain to work and do, do, do what it's supposed to do. What kind of genes you said there's 25 of them mm -hmm. that have been identified now. Yep. What kind of things do they regulate and how do they, when they're disrupted, how is that, what, what's going on? 
Some of them are genes whose functions we don't understand. Interestingly, a number of, of the mutations in the genes are what are called triplet repeat expansion genetic defects. And so the, the triplet is three, uh, codons in the, in the DNA sequence. And as, um, as many of the listeners may know, the genetic code is, uh, the, the, each word is, is three codons, uh, is three, uh, nucleotides, which makes a codon. And there are these class of genetic disorders where these things expand and you get a nonsense phrase, if you will where you have CAG, and it's repeated over and over, and it expands, and sometimes it expands from one generation to the next. So I think eight of the, the spinocerebellar ataxias are triplet repeat expansions. And there are other neurological diseases like Huntington's disease that have the same origin. So that, you know, so that those neurodegeneration mechanisms, genetic mechanisms, are yet to be explained, but I think there's an opportunity to do that with the ataxias. Some of the genes, getting back to your question, some of the genes, their function is known. And many of them are ion channels or signaling proteins. Okay. And a lot of them uh, are involved in excitatory synaptic signaling, metabotropic glutamate receptors, which is a type of receptor for glutamate, the main excitatory neurotransmitter. And these deficits in the gene are almost certainly not causing a loss of function of the gene, but rather a gain of function. And so that makes it a real mystery. And we we know that in part because the diseases are dominant diseases. So if you have one bad copy, you get the disease. And usually that means that it's not because the gene isn't functioning, because you have another good copy and you you know you'd be able to make up for the deficit. We also know that where where mice have been genetically engineered to have these mutations, the mice will get the disease. But in the mouse, if you knock the gene out completely, there's no, in some cases, there's very little phenotype. Hmm. Okay, I see. So this is, again, you said like... The so it's a gain of negative of function. I see, yeah. okay. The, I, can, I can see then that the if you are messing up, right, the conductances and the, the, the ability of the neurons to like, you know, coordinate, is that the idea that by sort of messing that up, you are then, you know, developing a taxi or developing incoordinate movement? That's right. And the other kind of mystery with these diseases is that many of these, these diseases have late onset in life. So trouble is brewing and an individual will start to have a, an obvious movement disorder at age 45, 50, 55, and then it gets worse over time. And so we, in, you know, in general terms, we think that Purkinje neurons, one of the main neuron, uh, main cell type in cerebellum and a cell type that is affected in all of these ataxias, they're taxed over time. Perhaps this gain of negative function in the genes is causing the Purkinje cells to work harder, to sort of fall behind, to get injured, and then at a certain point you've lost function or maybe even lost the cells themselves, enough of them, that the ataxia ensues. Uh, let's break down this brain region too that you study. So you study cerebellum. Can you tell us what it is, what it's involved in, what we know about it, 
and why this brain region is really nice to study brain circuitry and yeah. uh, if you want to you know study coordination things like that yep so it's a part of the brain that's in the back on the back of your head just above where your neck uh, meets your head and if you kind of bring to mind a picture of the brain it's the part that looks more wrinkled often that's right in the back <laughs> a little basketball um, under the cerebral cerebellar cortex <laughs> uh, the, uh, cerebral cortex and it is a brain region that's conser conserved throughout uh, evolution so fish have cerebella uh, birds, you know, all the way, uh, all vertebrates essentially have cerebellum. So they can be great athletes. And they can be great athletes, <laughs> you know, in their own way. Yeah. That's right. Um, like all of us, subject to the constraints of our limbs and <laughs> whether we have fins or feet. Um, and so this, and, and also, um, also indicative of the conservation, the basic connectivity in the circuit of the cerebellum is conserved across all of these levels of vertebrate phy phylogeny. And so it's doing something that's fundamental in this way, and we know that it plays a role in, move in coordination of movement. We know that from lots of research, perhaps some of the most persuasive early on were studies of uh, humans during World War I that had uh, received gunshot wounds. And so this is Gordon Holmes. And he described very specific deficits that were due to damage to the cerebellum. And those deficits included tremors when moving, inaccurate movements, the inability to make uh, rapid sequences of movements, and the ability, the inability to learn how to make more coordinated movements. So all of these things require an intact cerebellum. One of the things that is, you know, we don't think about this, but um, luckily, we don't have to because of our cerebella. Uh, but you, in order to be coordinated, you need to predict how to move. And so you can't, you're not reacting when you become better at hitting a tennis ball so that it, it uh, hits the right uh, position in the court opposite on the opposite side. Uh, you're not, you're not getting better at reading feedback signals. You're getting better at predicting what you need to do given the events that are ensuing as the ball comes over the net at you. And we believe that those memories are stored in the cerebellum, that you build up through practice over time, trial and error practice, you build up better predictions about how to move. This is that motor learning kind of idea that and we most people are familiar with, you know, riding a bike, learning that. It's a laborious process. And then over time, you sort of just becomes this natural uh, movement and also, I guess I like to think, oh, I'm reacting to the information and then providing the correct behaviors. But I think that's an interesting perspective, right? That it's really the cerebellum. So you're saying cerebellum really allows you to be one step ahead of that. Exactly. Predict what movement needs to happen before you do it. Oh. Our nerve cells in the human body, they conduct impulses. That's how uh, your body, your nervous system can coordinate movement. And uh, you can think of nerves as wires of, of a sort, but they're much slower than wires. The signals that are conducted along these nerves are slower, are conducted more slowly in most of the nerves than Usain Bolt runs. So <laughs> slower than about 10 meters per second, which is about how fast Usain Bolt he runs a little bit faster than that. Yeah. And so that, I'm sure you know, it's like kind of that. blows your mind. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, wait a second, I'm running faster than my brain my nerves, can tell yeah. me. <laughs> Some of his nerves. Wait a second. <laughs> Some of his nerves are faster than that. Some of them can go about 100 meters per second. But they're a lot slower than wires. So mm -hmm. electricity in a wire is way faster and so in a robot, 
you've got a lot more room for feedback to sort of put you back on course. With, with biology, feedback is way too slow. Mm-hmm. When those signals come up into the nervous system that say, oh boy, that ball's going over the fence mm-hmm. on that last swing. It's way too late <laughs> to correct. So not, another thing robots are better at, they can, yeah, they can have better circuitry, but. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, like, I, yeah. I saw a, someone showed me a video recently of a competition, and I think it was in Japan, that they that they have periodically where they have robots play soccer. Really? And on the one hand, it's really amazing because How are, wait, the robots are out on their own. Okay. You know, they have to see the ball on their own. They have to move around on their own. There's not someone tapping on a keyboard or wirelessly this controlling is, the robot. This is really... They have a program to learn how to exactly. play. Exactly. They're uh-huh. autonomous. But when you watch... The robots play soccer, and I coach my son's soccer team. There, it's it's quite funny because you know the ball goes by them, and they'll turn around and fall over, and then they'll <laughs> have to get up slowly. And so, I do think that um, given this, you know, on the one hand, the future is bright for robots because they're going to have faster feedback. They may not need a cerebellum, okay, but we're still not quite there yet. Okay, we can still do they do that. Do we beat the robots still though? I think. I mean, just watching these robots, they're very short because they're small robots okay. too. But um, they should. Give I don't them, think we're close to having a robot that can play a sport. See, as soon as they give them like a flamethrower or something, it's yeah, no, be, it's true. That would be game over. <laughs> right. Um. So the cerebellum. What what's what about the circuit makes it ideal for if you want to understand coordinated behaviors and things like that. What are some of the things we know about the cells within that cell? Like, what's the the architecture of it that makes it so good for studying it? Through decades of research, we've learned the basic anatomical plan. And the wiring diagram in the cerebellum is deceptively simple. And in fact, 30 years ago, when people started to develop, uh, you know, realistic theories about how the cerebellum might work, when in, in moments where their humility uh, lapsed, they would boast, we're going to settle, we're going to figure this out, you know, in the next five years, we're going to figure out how the cerebellum works. And of course that didn't happen. Um, but, um, but it is a, a simple circuit. It's a circuit that's conserved across phylogeny. So it's, it's making computations that must be fundamental and that many parts of the brain, including parts that are non-motor, are using. And we're, you know, we're making good progress. We know what information is carried by some of the inputs, and we are learning uh, more and more about information carried by some of the outputs. What about when we, we talked about it's it's important for learning? What's going on to say when you are learning a new thing, like a new sport? Your, your, your son is trying to learn how to yeah. play soccer, and what kind of uh, things are happening at that moment? When one makes a mistake, we believe that there's a signal that comes into the cerebellum, and that signal directs changes in synaptic connections at specific sites within the circuit. And in that way, the output of the sensory information, the contextual information that comes into the cerebellum, the transformation can change, and that context can generate a different output. Now, you might then say, well, how does the cerebellum know to improve the output? And that's a very, that's a very good question. And I mean, I, I can't say we I was completely just know the answer <laughs> to that. 
Um, but it is a, because of the feedback loop, if the output is not adaptive, you'll generate more errors. And so in that way, you can imagine things improve because more errors would generate more change. But it's also true that there's a lot about the wiring and other aspects of the performance that relate to the wiring that we don't yet understand. Can you tell us what you've done in your lab in the in the in the past, and what you've contributed to this uh, yeah. aspect or this uh, field of science? So we've spent a lot of time uh, looking at how cells in the cerebellum function, uh, and how uh, uh, mechanisms that the cells use to communicate with one another work. Neurotransmitter receptors of various types. Uh, different types of ion channels work on cerebellar neurons. This is kind of stretching back to my graduate. Uh, my graduate work. When I started my own lab at UCLA, we continued with that work, but over time we became more interested in a bigger part of the circuit, how the neurons are communicating with one another and how they might be doing that during behavior and during learning. And in recent years, we've taken advantage of some really amazing new tools that are in a class of tools called optogenetics. And what these tools allow one to do is to use light, visible light, to alter the activity of neurons in the circuit, to either shut them off or turn them on. And so we can test now specific hypotheses about how the cerebellum works during movement and how learning might be accomplished by changes uh, in connections at certain positions in the circuit. And so we are doing manipulative experiments with those sorts of tools. And, and we are, for example, uh, creating new motor memories where one can elicit movements in response to sensory input where there wouldn't be a movement prior to the training. By using these tools, what things have you answered? Like, uh, were there things that like kind of questions in the field that were unanswered? And these are kind of like saying that, oh, this seems to be the correct path. So I think that uh, and, and this is the case often in lots of scientific experiments. We've added we've added more certainty to things that were hypothesized, mm-hmm. and so the experiments that we did were informed by lots of work by lots of people beforehand. But where the answers maybe weren't quite certain, and we went in and with these manipulative experiments, we could say, okay, if we do this, we predict based on the hypothesis that we can get learning, and we did. Moreover, how the learning occurs, how activity activity during learning, these, these signals that come into the cerebellum based on mistakes or errors, how those signals drive changes in the circuit, the details of that we can explore with much, much greater precision. And so we are creating changes in the circuit at specific sites. And you might imagine we can create part of a memory and ask, if we make the changes over here in this part of the circuit, but not in all of the sites, what does the behavior look like? What does the memory look like? And in that way, it teaches us, do we need all of the sites? Why do we need all of the sites? Do they happen in parallel, the changes, or serially, and so on? What's on the horizon, too? What, what's, uh, I guess, for your lab in the next 5, 10 years? Yeah, well, one of the things that we're really keen uh, to, to start doing is to use these sorts of approaches and, and kind of marry the two things that we've talked about, diseases that strike cerebellum and these new approaches to understanding how the circuit works, and to go in and to ask circuit-level questions about the diseases. We have, we, my own lab and, and many others in the field, have um, genetic models in mice 
where there are human genetic diseases, ataxias, uh, human disease genes, in fact, that in mice will cause a similar disease. And we can now go in to that circuit and ask, are circuit-level learning mechanisms impaired? And if so, how? What parts of the circuit don't work well? And what parts seem normal? And one can imagine how that knowledge will be really important for, for therapeutic approaches that involve prosthetics or even therapeutic approaches that involve more specific drugs. I should say that drug treatments for these diseases really are, are grossly inadequate. I mean, they really are not good pharmacological treatments for spinocerebellar ataxia. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of potential to make progress and to, you know, to de deliver therapy for these kinds of disorders. Could we talk about some of the, a little more detail about the techniques that you use to study? We've, we've talked about the, your ability to both activate and inactivate parts of the circuit using light. What are you looking at? What kind of, what kind of uh, readouts are you looking at to, to measure this? Yeah. So in some experiments, we try to make measurements within the circuit and ask which neurons within the circuit change their activity when we give, when we give site specific stimuli like this, cell type specific stimuli. And so those are usually electrical measurements, electrophysiological measurements where we'll measure from a particular cell type. In parallel, we're doing experiments where we make behavioral measurements. And the measurements we're making now use high-speed video and motion tracking to look at movement. And this allows us to measure movement with great precision. You know, you can imagine, I mean, in our lab, it's, it's unfortunately not this sophisticated, but the kinds of motion tracking that you see in Hollywood studios when they're gearing up to do special effects and make people fly through the air or jump on buildings or so on. Tracking all of the movement and putting that into a computer, that's the kind of thing that we're... Uh, so it's like those to. little little uh, suits with the trackball. Yeah, exactly. Thing. Okay, I see. Yeah. And so you use those. Uh, and what kind of are you using? This is in mice, is that right? This is in mice. So we don't right now we don't have multi-joint uh, measurements, but we'd, we'd love to, okay. to go there. We just haven't set it up yet. Awesome. Right now, we're, we're mainly looking at four-limb movements in mice. And okay. I look forward to the 3D yeah. mouse <laughs> right. suit. And then having, you can then use that to... And then for, movies for and Ratatouille 3, three. Can, uh, you know. We'll call Disney up and tell them that this is the guy you need to see if you ever want right. that. <laughs> can you tell us this kind of a story of, you know, how you got into studying the... What, got into studying the this field. What what drew you to studying the cerebellum and, uh, yeah. and motor learning? Well, I, I'll tell you a, a story early on. So I I was an undergraduate student at Stanford. And at the time I I was uh I was thinking about going to medical school. I was also taking um a lot of psychology classes and it was, you know, I found the brain very interesting and I had the opportunity. I was also really besotted with marine biology because I, when I, I had the opportunity to study in an immersive biology course at the marine station that Stanford owns and operates, which is called Hopkins Marine Station. And it's in Monterey. It's right aside of the Monterey Bay Aquarium. It's a beautiful place. Each spring quarter, they would run a course where students could come down there and they could take a full schedule course. And in the course, they would learn about 
some aspect of biology and then design a research project and conduct the research project for the majority of the quarter. And the quarter that I went down there, this was 1987, uh, the, the research topic was cephalopods, which is um, the order that includes octopus and squid and cuttlefish. So we learned all about octopus, squid, and cuttlefish, about behavior, about comparative anatomy, and, um, and so on. And I did a research project on squid. And it was when I, when I first learned about, really, about neuroscience and about making, um, about how nerve cells work and how one could experimentally understand how nerve cells work. And squid um, were a kind of historically significant preparation because the way that nerve cells signal electrically was first discovered in squid. They have a, a cell that's called the giant axon, which uh, allows them to escape. And the way they escape from predators is to jet water out of their body cavity. So they have this rapid response, and this giant axon allows them to do that quickly because it can. it's very fast. Uh, Hodgkin and Huxley won the Nobel Prize for figuring out how the giant axon impulse works. And so in my project, I was measuring, uh, making measurements from this giant axon in squid, live squid, trying to escape. And, you know, they were, they're pretty smart animals and they would often get angry at me. <laughs> and they were really good at, they would, they would kind of wait in the bottom of the tank and until I peered over the edge. And then they would not only jet water, but also fill their body cavity with ink because, you know, <laughs> like octopus. And so I was, um, you know, it was a real, uh, it was some days it was, it was, still they put me to like, <laughs> um, but it was a, you know, it was a great exposure to, to experimental science and, mm -hmm. um, and to neuroscience. And from that point on, I decided that I wanted to, I wanted to be a neuroscientist. I wanted to try to understand how, how neurocells work, how drugs work in brain, how, brain circuits um, become impaired in, in neurological diseases and so on. So I went to graduate school after that. Cool. Uh, and covered in ink still, I'm sure. Covered in ink, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I threw the T-shirts away. That <laughs> I've never had that happen. I've... I've I've seen like some octopi and like on a beach and went up to it and it it squirted but it went like somewhere else so I've never had it unfortunately fortunately it's not yeah it's not when they're in the water they're quite formidable right. Right. <laughs> when they're out of the water they're <laughs> yeah so you did this live like you you got a yeah. you said an electrode or something in yeah the so there was there was a around. suction electrode on the giant fiber and we oh, and we eventually I mean after a couple of years of work we were uh, we published a paper one of the first papers. Wow. That I have is, um, was published in the proceedings of National Academy of Science. Wow. On squid giant axon. <laughs> um, you're like, hey, Hodgkin and Huxley, you guys did this the easy way. We're yeah. The... <laughs> well, you know, uh, one, one would well, be so lucky have to have the success they did. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, uh, so, how'd you, so that, that set you off on a path for studying, uh, you know, neural circuits. Uh, was there something that led you into a cerebellum or kind of motor learning in particular, or was that just a good, good model for studying what you wanted to do? Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say I kind of, I kind of stumbled into it and, um, the way that that came about. Uh, so I did my, I, my PhD working on, uh, cellular neurophysiology and hippocampus. And then I did a postdoc fellowship at the University of Wisconsin-Madison 
And there I studied auditory circuits. Again, um, studying uh, physiology, cellular neurophysiology. Uh, and I did a second postdoc at the Volum Institute in Portland, Oregon. And there, uh, there is where I started to work on, on the cerebellum. And what drew me to the cerebellum actually was the observation that a certain type of signaling mechanism uh, was specialized in Purkinje neurons, the main neuron in the cerebellum. And the signaling mechanism was uh, a mechanism for reuptake of the neurotransmitter glutamate. So you probably have heard about reuptake. Many, many of your listeners may have heard about reuptake because a class, an important class of antidepressant drugs are serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So neurotransmitters, one of the ways that their actions are terminated is by being taken back up into cells, glial cells or neurons. And at that time, which was the mid-90s, we really didn't know a lot about how these mechanisms worked. And Purkinje neurons had this special glutamate reuptake mechanism. And so I started experiments on these neurons, which happened to be cerebellar neurons, to study that mechanism. And we, and we made good progress on that and figured some important things out about, uh, about glutamate reuptake. But after that, when I started my own lab at UCLA, I thought, well, it'd be a shame if I just used this neuron to study this little bit of mechanism, I should really learn about what this neuron does in the brain. And so I started to read about um, about what the cerebellum does, and I became fascinated with, with questions, both about how normal cerebellum works and about how diseases that strike the cerebellum uh, come about. What's something that you... That was unexpected. In your, this, this could be from any part of your, your scientific career, but something that was unexpected and you looked at it and you weren't sure about it. And then over time, it kind of developed into something that you was reliable and was kind of real, but something that started off didn't believe it. it was, do you have any like stories about kind of like stumbling upon something? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because in day, in the day to day life in the lab, we, um, I always tell the people in, in my lab that, um, that talk is cheap, so we should talk a lot. <laughs> and, you know, what I mean by that is it's, it's great to be thinking about how to do an experiment and how to extract some impactful piece of information. It's the easiest thing to do, and we should do it as often as we can. Because once you, pick a strategy and start to try to do the experiments, they're invariably quite complicated and they take a lot of time. And so I am constantly coming up with ideas that after we think about them for a while, and sometimes when we do some initial experiments, turn out to be completely boneheaded ideas. <laughs> and so I could give you countless examples of, of those. But every once in a while, there's an idea that, that I have and that other people in my lab don't believe or that someone in my lab has and that I don't believe. And that's when it gets really interesting because there, for example, with, with regard to the experiments that we've been 
talking about where we can activate parts of the circuit. We set about doing these experiments for a very specific reason, and we hypothesized that if we inhibited Purkinje cells, we could drive a learning process. For I didn't believe that if we activated the Purkinje cells, we could drive learning, which in retrospect turned out to be completely boneheaded <laughs> because when people in the lab did that experiment, the learning was really robust and remarkable. So that's, you know, one example. And I think one of the things that makes science so exciting in a way is how humble it makes one. I mean, even the best scientists, it's the surprises. And it's when you, you think something's going to turn out, you're sure it's going to turn out this way. And then you see something that is completely fascinating. And so I think, you know, the lessons there are be humble. Always be humble and pay attention because often it's what you didn't expect. What do you enjoy most about your day-to-day -day being a scientist? I love, of course, when when we when we're making progress, when we when our ideas um, seem to be um, seem to be well well calibrated, and we we think we're learning about something. Um, I love to see people in my lab see that excitement. I mean, there's nothing better than having a young scientist in the lab see the difference they can make if they do an experiment and they, and they learn something that no one's seen before. That's really, that's very, very cool. Um, and even early on, er, you know, at the earliest point in the training when, in a course, when they can use their growing knowledge and design an experiment or uh, think about something in a sophisticated way. That's really fun. So um, I enjoy that enormously. Um, I like to read about science and I get to do that. Um, not quite as often as I'd like, but, um, but I'm spoiled. <laughs> uh, you know, our, I mean, it's, it's a remarkable job because you get to control your own intellectual time and think about think about things and, and try to advance knowledge. And that's a very special thing. I mean, we, I, I, I certainly realize that. It's like being a professional athlete. Somebody pays you to do something that you really love to do. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be that way. That's all I have for you. So thank you so much. I really thank appreciate you, you talking this with really us. This really great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.